Hello, everyone. This is Mark Steiner, your host for Sound Bites right here on The Mark Steiner Show, on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and on Marvel Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Last week, I moderated another Good Food Gathering Town Hall meeting at the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in Baltimore. This month, we delved into the fascinating history of black farmers in America and talked to black farmers and others trying to keep that way of life alive despite the odds and learning about the history that led to the place we're in now through the incredible film Homecoming, which we showed at that town meeting. Joining us were the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, who is pastor of the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, Aaliyah Frazier, educator, scientist, returning generation, urban and rural farmer, Dwayne Kusar, founder of the Brooklyn Greenhouse Community, and Lavette Blue, co-founder and co-manager of the Greener Garden. This town hall meeting was sponsored by the Hopkins Baltimore Food and Faith Project that is part of the Center for a Livable Future, Interfaith Power and Light, and the Mark Steiner Show. And here's that conversation. Land is the basis of all independence. Land is the basis of freedom, justice, and equality. About nine million Negroes in our southern states, and the majority of them live on farms. While many of these farmers have achieved independence and perhaps prosperity, all too many barely make a living. In 1910, black farmers owned 15 million acres of land. Since that time, the 15 million have been reduced to 4 million acres. The future, 1984, will mark the black race as a landless people. It's paying off so that we won't be in the streets or whatever. And it's also um, renewing our heritage because our ancestors and our grandparents and our parents also had to do this. These are my cousins, Verna and Jessica. They're doing what I did when I was about their age, except I didn't use words like ancestors back then, and I think I was feeling more like Jessica, dreading every moment I spent in that hot sun. A hundred years ago, a six-year-old ancestor of hers and mine worked in the hot sun on days like this, from sunup to sundown. I always like to start with uh, the end of the Civil War, when four million African Americans were freed. And then you go through some bitter years of Reconstruction and the populist movement and then all these segregation laws. And still, when you get up to 1910, there were 200,000 African Americans who had bought land that they farmed. And that's just a remarkable record, considering that during slavery, people weren't allowed to learn to read and write. But they learned a lot about farming and they utilized that once they were free. This is my cousin, Warren James. Warren works long days in hot weather by choice. Warren is a farmer, one of only 18,000 black farmers left in this country, down from a high of nearly 1 million in 1910. Warren farms here in Montezuma, Georgia, the only place I know where most people I meet are related to me by either blood or marriage. When people ask me where I'm from, Montezuma, Georgia is the only thing that comes to mind even though I've never lived here longer than a few weeks until I began this film. This is the story of my family. This is the story of black farmers in the 20th century. This is a story of land and love. And that was a clip from the documentary film, Homecoming, which illustrates the history of African-American farmers through one farming family's history. We screened that film before we jumped into our discussion at the Pleasant Hill Baptist Church for our good food gathering. Before I start, let me do this. Very quickly, let me just go down the, go down the aisle. 
Just take two sentences and describe your places and farms so people understand where we are. Why don't you, Doug? Well, Brooklyn Greenhouse Community uh, basically was a dream that I had uh, and uh, it finally came true, you know, being able to have my own farm. It's an urban farm, and we produce a lot of uh, superfoods that help people to get back healthy. You know, uh, a lot of folks are suffering from diabetes, and uh, we want to change that, and we know it's possible. You know, so we have the Brooklyn Greenhouse community. We're going to be around for a while. Alia Fraser. So, yeah, our farm is called Black Dirt Farm, and it's out in Preston, Maryland. A little history about the land. Well, there's 137 acres owned by two black women, and they purposefully, like this video called Homecoming, it was a homecoming for them. One of them grew up there, a lot of family land there, and on top of that, it's the ancestral lands of Harriet Tubman, so where her parents were enslaved, and she did a few of her walks to freedom, were actually from that plot of land that we're growing on. I mean, the slave owner had about 2,000 acres, and we're on 137 of that track, but there's a lot of history, um, and it's really powerful. We have a lot of gatherings. Come, people come out there. We're trying to train and talk and just get activate people into growing their own food and showing that it's a very sustainable way to build our community. So, <laughs> so let me. I, I know that you are working on a garden program with your church as well. I'd, I'd like to start off, Heber, if you would start us off. And, and I'm just, when I look at the history of, of black folks from farming from this film and think about where we are now in the future, and I, and I visited a, a number of black communities in the Eastern Shore where farmers actually own their land, but they don't farm it anymore. They rent it out to white farmers. And I'm, it's really interesting that, to find that. I'm curious what you think, if you could paint a vision for just a moment of the potential future built out of this past. So yes, just very quickly, uh, we're, we've been blessed here to have Maxine's Garden, which is uh, right outside. Uh, we've been growing for about five seasons now, and um, it's named after one of the oldest members of our church, who is from South Carolina. Uh, and uh, at 83, 83, something up there, 83 years old, has the strength, I tell people she has the strength of about 10 teenagers, and she, she keeps that thing going, and um, uh, we produce about three to 400 pounds of produce every year. Um, in terms of a vision, I mean, oh my goodness. <laughs> that, the story and the history is uh, special and important, and um, so many points of intersection with my own family as well. My, Mother's side of my family is from a little dot on the map called Kilmonic, Virginia. And um, between Kilmonic, Virginia and Sunnybank, Virginia, and my father's side is from Aden, North Carolina. And um, come from big families, 10, 11, 12 children, as a lot of folks in here have that story as well. And they own a lot of land um, down there. And one of the things, I'm coming, I'm coming to your question, Mark, but one of the it's things okay. that... Um, we talk about often, or I do, when I have my special one-on-ones with Grandma, is I say, Grandma, I know you and your nine or ten brothers and sisters own this land, and that's the land where Big Mama, Mama Geraldine, raised all of you. I say, Grandma, before y'all consider selling it to anybody else, please come to me first 
I said, because I want to do my part to keep it in the family. Uh, and I say that for both sides of our family. Uh, and it's for many of the reasons that were, you know, lifted up in this, in this film. I would say that when I watched this film, uh, I saw the issue of displacement in this uh, demonstrated through the various um, uh, stories and the different ways that people were intentionally displaced from their land. And uh, whether you're talking about displacement in the rural context or displacement in the urban context, uh, black folk know about displacement and loss of land and how that's tied to um, a compromising of building and growing for power, right? And so when, for example, um, Johns Hopkins uproots an entire black community to expand its campus and displaces black folk all over the city, and I still don't have the answers as to where folks are being displaced to, uh, but we see that picture on the west side as well. We see those pictures of displacement. I thought about something, though, um, Mark. I thought about, um, well, I smile real hard whenever I'm near Aaliyah. She, between her and Sasha, I mean, they are uh, the angels of, they embody dreams that I have. I'm no farmer I'm, at all. <laughs> uh, but in terms of seeing the importance of it and trying to do my part to help to understand, as the, one of the brothers was saying, the social and political ramifications of what it means for black power, uh, if I can say that on the radio. Uh, but land is e equated to power and wealth. And so in understanding the social and political aspects of that, I'm looking at ways to connect with black farmers like Aaliyah uh, and so many others um, in these different uh, farms and even gardens and growing all over the place. So here's my dream. Y'all ready? The dream. People are already growing. Black folk are growing everywhere in boots, in farms. We are growing. So here's my dream. Here's what I'm thinking. What if we were able to work together to connect the dots of all of these gardens and farms, connect the dots, and create a system, uh, an alternative food system, where we begin small, sure, of course, but we just start connecting those dots between the growers and the natural gathering places of black folk right now. And you're sitting in one of the natural gathering places of black folk, churches. So my dream is, what would it look like to connect churches many of which are growing like Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, connect churches, connect farmers, growers, and just begin piece by piece thinking through what it means. Now, Sasha and Aaliyah and others have been very helpful in helping me pull this dream down out the air a little bit and, and, and really grapple with it in a way that's more aligned with the actual experience. But yet, the dream still remains because the pieces are already in place. Churches are already networked, already. Farmers are already networked <laughs> and sharing information and resources and the like. And so my organizer background says, what if we connect it in ways that we're already networked and just thought about a bigger picture? Now, the other thing is, last thing, Mark, you shouldn't have started with me, I told you. <laughs> if black folk are being displaced out of cities, and if we got the reverse of white flight now, so now white folk coming in the city, want, you know, want to, right? What would it mean, uh, what does it mean for us to respond, engage, and wrestle with even gentrification in such a way that if we're being pushed out to the suburbs where the land is, what if we thought about 
ways to be strategic around that. I, that just came up from the movie. I don't have any answers there, but it just made me think, well, if we're getting pushed out to the county, to the suburbs already where the land is, well, what possibilities are there um, if that's happening already? What possibilities are there? So, so let's imagine this for a moment. This is a good place to begin. That's one of the reasons I wanted Heber to start, because, because I know you have this vision of what could be, and we've interviewed a lot of people over the last few years on our program, Soundbites, about this idea and what the alternatives could be. And, and all three of you on the panel have your hands in the dirt and are doing the farming and keeping it alive. So what is that reality? I'm going to come out here and get your thoughts, ideas, and questions about how this might happen and what might be built in this community and how we get there. But let, let's think about that. I mean, th th there, there's this whole notion, A, about could be suburban farming, but ideas about <clears throat> urban farming in, in Baltimore. People are doing plots. There's all this vacant land in our city that is uh, not being used. It's sitting there. Uh, and what that could be turned into uh, and how we begin to utilize that, what that system would look like to all of you, to reinvent something that was taken away, but reinvent it in a 21st century way. Who wants to be in? Lee, why don't you start? There's the city aspect, and then there's also the rural aspect. And we're at a point in history because of uh, the, t the age of farmers and the age of landowners, where there's more land up for grabs than ever, and it's a matter of who's gonna, who, who's gonna have control of that. And I definitely agree within the city taking over vacant lots and stuff, but along with you, I, I think if we're to be strategic about alternative food systems and us having some type of say and control in it, we have to start talking about moving out into these rural areas. But at the same time, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of um, misunderstanding, and there's definitely lack of community. <laughs> the farms in Preston, Maryland, 90% white town, uh, the one square mile around the farm is very black, but we're the only black farmers out there, you know? So I've had friends, you know, always ask me, like, is it safe out there? How do you feel? And I'm starting to wonder, <laughs> because, we're, you know, we stand out there, we're farming, and Black people always go by and honk and wave. White people will never wave or rarely wave, and they do come and talk to us, but it's always like asking questions. Um, what are y'all doing out here? Um, what did you, you know, you, how were you able to buy, build that greenhouse? Where'd you get that tractor? Like, just those underlying questions that make you really um, wonder about motives. And I, I mean, yeah, I just feel like we have to re-envision re what a black agrarian life could be like. Well, one of the biggest things from the film that I took was when he said we were uprooted from the South and that disconnection that um, occurred. But that's why I consider myself a returning generation farmer. You know, I'm not, I am beginning, but at the same time, like, it's, it's in all of our bloods. No, no matter your color, you know, we are an agrarian people, so we, we just have to go back to that. Or not everyone needs to be a farmer, but we all have to support it. I have a question about the do you, do you Come have our wait on bit. What you saw in the film is actually the life that I lived. I came off a farm. I grew up there. I came. I actually came from Virginia. My husband came from Virginia. Um, my parents decided, okay, she can't go to school here at an earlier age. You can go in Maryland at an earlier age. So I came here and I went to school. But every holiday, every summer, every day that we were out of school for five days or more, we were in Virginia. I picked corn, I 
did the tobacco, the whole bit. And yes, you had family reunions, you had a lot of people there. You knew your family. You don't have that now. And not just black people, but white people don't have it either. They have a disconnect because they're all over the United States. But before, everybody was in a place and you could always say, I'm going home. And everybody knew what you were talking about. Oh, you're going to Virginia, okay. They knew it. They knew at a certain time of year, you were gonna have a family reunion and everybody was gonna be there and there was gonna be lots of food. And this is what I grew up with. So when I, we finally moved, I said, I looked and I said, oh, there's some land out there. I took my four o'clock, but we can grow on it. And that was almost 30 years ago. So we started with a little piece of land and every time a piece of land came up, we bought it. Or we talked to people and said, you're not using that, can we use your land? So now we're doing a little bit of both. And I love it, I love it. Because I don't care how angry I get, how things upset me, when I go out in that garden, it's all gone. It's all gone. And I want that, I want other people to have that experience. And I want them to know that they can have it here in the city. They don't have to go out to the county. They don't have to go somewhere else in another state. They have it right here. And I'm willing to take anybody that wants to stop and take a look. I'll take my time. My husband says I talk all the time. <laughs> and I will go through it with them. I have a friend here. She comes over, I talk to her. Mentor. <laughs> yeah. And I tell her, you can do this. I encourage anybody. I have container drawings, you know, containers on my porch that I grow things. Even though I have a big garden, I grow in my containers because there's certain things I want to do and certain things I've learned with herbs that uh, are invasive and can take over your whole garden. So I've learned this and it's a learning process and even though we've been at it for years, I'm still learning. And I want to pass that on. Do you know the average age of a farmer in the United States is 60 years of age. Think about it. Dwayne. Well, uh, my situation was all about uh, eating good food. You know, my, my dream um, actually was a real dream, and I, and I felt like I was talking to angels, and they told me, they said, you know, eat all you want, you know, eat all you want and uh, drink all you want. But uh, in this situation, uh, I didn't have no money. So when I came to Baltimore, I identified with the Power in Dirt program called powerindirt.com. You can go on that site. Uh, you can adopt a lot. There's over 15,000 lots all over Baltimore City. And um, you, anybody can do it. You can adopt a lot. My, my dream, my um, idea was to start small and uh, eventually one day I will own a bigger, bigger um, farm out like on the Eastern Shore, you know, uh, somewhere like that. But um, basically right now, uh, my goal is to help people to become more healthier, you know, to eat, long, eat better foods, live longer lives. My grandmother lived 93. My nana lived like 92. They all had gardens. My grandfather, he 
uh, live to be 96, uh, all in the 90s. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I want to live my, you know, I want to live a long life too, you know. So basically, uh, farming really saves me a lot of money. All I got to buy is seeds. You know, last year, uh, there's no telling how many homeless people we fed off of just one little lot, you know, just one little lot. And uh, I mean, it was a dream that I had a long time ago as a young kid to be able to feed multitudes of people, you know, like you read in the Bible. Uh, and uh, that dream actually came true for me. I was, I was able to go out there and feed people, uh, and one thing led to another. Now, um, um, partnering with uh, the Pathway Church of God, and I'm partnering with the Dream Center, where we're doing uh, juicing classes to help people to take back control of their lives. Because, uh, you know, a lot of folks seems like that they just settle for three pills, all kind of medications. Uh, some people taking 11, nine pills a day. And it's not really necessary. All that, all those different names that they put on the herbs, you don't need it because uh, you can grow everything that you need in order to heal your body. And basically, rest heals your body. But there's nothing like uh, working in the earth, uh, putting your hands. Actually, you know, a lot of people want to work with gloves. I don't work with gloves. I actually want to get my hands in the herb so the, the, the yeah. nutrition and the value of the, of the you know, the herbs can absorb in your skin. It makes you strong, you know. Um, and it's a passion for me. I love gardening. You know, I'm dealing with, right now I have like aquaponics with the fish. Um, we got strawberry plants where the fish feeds the plants and the plants feeds the fish. It's an ecosystem. The children come along. They want to get involved. You know, even older people, they want to get involved. Uh, we're selling veggie bags to people in the community because not everybody can afford uh artichokes. Not everybody can afford uh, the green peppers and red peppers, you know. People want the foods, but somehow or another, uh, uh, everybody's got away from cooking. So basically, farming uh, can lead to a whole lot of different uh, positive things, you know. Like they said, there's power in the dirt. The, the website is power in dirt. Anybody can adopt a lot. You're helping the city. Uh, when I first came to the city, it seemed like I was all alone, couldn't get no help. Uh, but people started coming around and seeing when the plants was growing, we could grow a lot of okra because okra can kind of like heal diabetes if you eat enough of it and you cook it right, you know, uh, you can eat it fresh. But basically, it's, it's a healing plant and uh, you can grow anything you want. You know, any kind of herbs, you can grow it all, anything you need. Uh, the, the thing I like about growing my own food is being able to cook and uh, use fresh, like basil, when you're doing the lasagna and stuff like that, you can use basil, fresh basil, and the taste is like, you can't compare the taste as to, as to going out to the restaurant. You got to spend $30, 40 for a real meal like that. So uh, 
I'm all with it. I'm, 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 I'm not really working that hard. You know, we got machinery, little tilling and stuff like that to till the dirt up and then throw the seeds down. Basically, I'm watering. You know, and the rains are pretty good this this year. You know, it's not a, lot of, a whole lot of hard work. A lot of people think it's a lot of hard work. It's not a whole lot of hard work. You gotta really You're the first from I ever heard say it's not a lot of hard work. You got to have a passion. You got to have a passion, just like in the movie. Just like in the movie when the girl said, you know, you got to condition your mind. You know, it's a getaway for me. Because when I was growing up in, in the streets of New York, you was either going to play basketball you was either going to go fishing, you was either going to do some gardening, or you was going to get in trouble and go to jail. So basically, it's a win-win situation. You're saving money, getting healthy, you're living longer, and you're changing the community around you. You're listening to last week's Good Food Gathering Town Hall meeting that we had at the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in Baltimore, where we explored the history of black farming and black farmers in America through the film Homecoming an incredible panel of African-American farmers and others wrestling with that subject, what we do now, and where we go in the future. Right now, we have to take a very brief break, but don't go away. There's more of this conversation in just a minute. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. And this hour, we're listening to last week's Good Food Gathering Town Hall meeting, that we held at the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church right here in Baltimore, where we explored the history of black farming in America. Here's the rest of that conversation. Joining us were the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, who is pastor of the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, Aaliyah Frazier, educator, scientist, returning generation, urban and rural farmer, Dwayne Kusar, founder of the Brooklyn Greenhouse Community, and Lavette Blue, co-founder and co-manager of the Greener Garden. So the question is, I'd like to push into a conversation about where we might go from here and how to change things in this community in a very positive way when it comes to land and growing food and, and how we do that. I mean, the, one of the things that struck me in this film and was said on my show a few weeks back when we had a conversation about this was somebody posited on the show that the reason so many people in the black community are averse to working on the land was because of the memories of the South because of the memories of sharecropping, the memories of oppression. That, 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 that breaking that tie is, is, uh, is, something that, that, uh, is something that was very, it was a big weight on people's minds. So, I, I'm, and I think about it, I was thinking about what the Blues have told me about their idea about wanting to see young farmers, a young farmer program in Baltimore, developing with people here, with young people, to learn how to, to love the land and get into it. So, um, I'm just curious where we think that we begin to go. I mean, I want to hear from you all, too. I know Sasha's in the audience and the people in the audience who are actually doing things to turn communities around and grow food that people share and buy and, and are part of. So how do we envision how... I'm going to stand up, if you don't mind, and I'm going to come out here to the mics. If you raise your hand, I'm going to come to you, okay? Um, how we begin to change this system. What do we do? What's the vision to begin to change what we do, and what can it do? Uh, Aaliyah, go ahead. Well, there's well, two things keep coming to mind during this conversation as far as like what we can do and what we need. And as far as land goes, like there, there are opportunities for land trust and getting land into perpetuity. And if you own land in the city, 
you need, yeah, first of all, make a will, and second of all, possibly look into land trust so that, that your land, you always know what it's gonna be used for. And number two, I mean, the video and the, farm, the black farmer situation in America is by far, for me personally, one of the biggest examples of systemic racism and like everything that we're talking about and seeing in the news now that's going on, it turns into very black or white on an individual level, but this is showing how systemic it is, so we also need to have our own funding. You know, there's a, that video talked a lot about loans and credit. We, you know, if we can't get it through these um, other avenues that we're trying to like break into, we need to have our own. And I will say like I have a group of friends and I don't know, Tracy McGurdy with Black Belt Justice Center starting a black agrarian fund. Like we need to be able to fund each other to do this work that needs to be done because as we have seen <laughs> in the system, the way it is working is not working with us all the time or at all. <laughs> so I mean, one of the things that I know that we've talked about before, your husband and I have talked about before is that you two believe that we could actually work a system that meets many of the basic needs food-wise of people in this city. And building is, as Reverend Heber Brown was talking about, an alternative system. I have a question for the audience. How many of you have a small body? There's your answer. Okay, there it is. All right. Because you grow, I don't care how small it is, you have started a revolution. We have forgot where we came from. Now, I'm not talking color. We have forgot as a people where we came from. We came, we were farmers. 90% of the people that came here from other countries are basically farmers. And that's what we know. And because we have systematic racism, not just against African Americans, but any person of color, we lost that. We, came, we became fragmented. And we went to the city in order to live. But we forgot to take the dirt along with us and to grow. My mother's, we had a little garden out in the back, and it was a certain space. You can't go over there, because that's my mother's garden. And then she said, okay, we're not gonna do that anymore, but we live close to Lexington Market, and we walked a mile to Lexington Market. And she basically showed me, this is how you do this, this is how you know it's fresh, and all like that. Okay, that was great. But then when I grew up, I didn't teach it to my children. I'm sorry to say it, I did not. I did not teach them. And so therefore, they did not teach their children. And it's a cycle. If you don't pass it down, what happens? It gets lost. So now, I have grown children who look at me like I'm crazy. They love the vegetables. Mm -hmm. But to say, I'm going out there, Mom, and help you is not going to happen. Now, my grandchildren help me. And so it's a cycle. So I skipped a generation, and my grandchildren are learning it, and my great grandchildren are learning it. 
and they think it's wonderful. They take cherry tomatoes and run up and down the aisle and throw it at each other. <laughs> and then they put it into a basket. And I go like, okay, hmm. But they said, well, we can eat that. It's just a little smush. I was like, okay, that's fine. So we eat it. And they laugh and they think it's fun. But I, I'm sorry in a way that I did not teach my children and I've come full circle. I feel like I've come full circle. I didn't hate the land. I hated sometimes the droughts, but we've gone through droughts and we've been fortunate here that we can obtain water. Now it's a lot of lots here, but the problem with some of the lots is there's no water access. So that is something you have to think about, okay? And unfortunately, you don't want to get me started on that. But anyway, there are other ways to make it work. And, but I encourage anybody, start a small garden, start a container garden. You'd be surprised at the peace that you find in doing it and how much you save. So, so let me go out to the audience. Hebrew, were you about to say something? Just real quick. I mean, the piece about financing. One of the things that, because I know um, all the pastors and religious leaders of Baltimore listen to your show, Mark. And uh, for one of the things that I'm also looking, I'm focused on is ways in which religious communities can establish some of the, I mean, learning about the emergency land fund. I mean, I felt like, you know, that story, Hansel and Gretel, and they left the breadcrumbs to go back home. So that's what I felt like in this movie. It was like, here are the crumbs. You don't have to necessarily reinvent a wheel. Sure, customize it for your context. But these are some of the issues that our folk faced. Here's the ways they went around it. And so for me, in terms of financing, um, one of the reasons why churches, black churches in particular, is still so relevant is because it's one of the few still autonomous, black-owned, black-controlled institutions in our community. Uh, for any critiques that people have of it, and I have, as a pastor, I have probably more than you. But in terms of the available resources, in terms of uh, uh, black resource, black people, black, black resources, and a black unapologetic black agenda where we don't have to check with nobody downtown before we decide what we're going to do, it's in the churches. It's in, our, it's in our temples. And so I would love to see the churches and pastors, some of you are listening, let's put our money together. I know you, we're not going out to the soil with a uh, nice seminary degree, but we can raise offerings. We can put money together so that when Sasha needs a, what you say, you need a storage something at a meeting we had? Sasha needs, she's in Park Heights, and she needs a storage cooler and a washing station, about 10000 15000 how much you need? 10000 that's all? There's 2,000-plus churches in Baltimore. If all of us took up an offer, we can make sure you had your, your storage station and your washing. So that's the kind of, we need to think on a systemic level, and I'm thankful for the individual family stories, but as I think about this from a systemic level, where is the money for black folk? If we can't get it from the bank, you can't get it from the city, you get it from the churches where the money is. So let, let, me, let me push that a little further, what you just said. So in the film, in the film, I forget the gentleman's name, but he's been on our show once, maybe twice, who ran the Southern Cooperative Association, and that's the Association of Black Farmers in the South. And what they did, and maybe is this a model for the city? I'm going to throw this out. And you, please, I want you all to join in on this. Their model is that black farmers pool the land, pool their resources, have their own individual farms, and grow, but they sell cooperatively, they sell their food cooperatively, so they have a bigger market to sell to, and can get it out there to stores as well as feed the people. So 
what you just said about the churches. So is it possible in a city like ours, in this community, this metropolitan community, that that kind of model would work here? Where people who, because everybody, I mean, I know what you said, Levette, but most people are not going to put their hands in dirt and farm. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. But there can be some people who farm, and most people are not going to farm. They're going to eat. So that, is there a way to build something like that, a cooperative system like that in this community, and how would we do it? What do you think? What do you, what do you all look right here, then I'll come over here, okay? And I'll hold on to the mic. You know, I got, do you want to say something? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll hold on to the mic. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I just wanted to say, as someone who... And what's your name? Oh, my name is Crystal. Okay. As someone who is not necessarily skilled at farming, um, I... I've joined AmeriCorps to work at Real Food Farm to get kind of more information and be of service to my community. Um, I have a food business where I try to support local farms, um, and it's something that I've come across a lot. Just as a person, before I even started my own business, um, my friends knew I was kind of involved in the food community. They were like, hey, do you know any black farms? And I can only think of one black farm at the time when I was thinking of I was thinking of Five Seeds Farm. And um, it kind of made me really sad. And I was like, dang, that's the only farm? Like, I was Googling, I was looking everywhere. I was like, how can I only, how's this the only farm? Um, and then over time, you know, through social media and connecting with other people in the community, you do find other growers. Um, but for me, as a business owner, um, I kind of feel like it is my responsibility to, you know, now more than ever, support local farm, especially black farming. Um, and the issue that I've had lately, I see a lot of, um, I've noticed a lot of local white growers getting, um, kind of giving urban agriculture people a hard time because they're saying that, oh, there's like lead in soil and you're using, you know, but that's the only access to land that you have, you know, you're trying to grow, you're growing responsibly, but it's putting a general um, bad view on any type of urban agriculture, which I feel like is kind of like a slight to black growers because that's most often the land that you have access to. Um, so to get back to my point, <laughs> my point being um, it's my responsibility as someone in the community to support urban agriculture and black agriculture by buying from and making more people aware of um, black farms. And I think it would be great if that happened. If there was a, collect a collaboration or collective of black farmers all across the state or even in the DMV, that we knew to come to and pull from, it would be amazing. I would totally love and be a part of that. And someone positive, I'll go over here. If someone wants to comment while I walk over this way, please do. Um, I had a, someone said to me, we talked about this idea once, that there is a natural system of distribution in the city that we haven't thought about. We have a culture in the sound of Arabers that we're moving supermarkets, moving from one community to the other no matter was by horse or electric cart. I mean, there, is it, there are all kinds of systems, I think, that we can be creative and we're not thinking about. You had something to say over here. My name is Adama Grace, and I'm one of the production assistants at Real Food Farms, um, which is um, a part of Civic Works. What I wanted to talk about was the whitewashing of agriculture. Um, on the policy end, um, those that write policy, those that write grants, those that control the funds that come through agriculture. Um, we need to have more of a voice um, in that arena as well. Um, I'm a grant writer. Um, before moving into farming, 
I was in business and education, so I, I come with other skills. And USDA just gave $18 million in agriculture, of which $10 million went to um, universities, and uh, $8 million went to private organizations to train beginning farmers and ranchers. And I looked through it, 39 different, 39 organizations that got those grants. Um, and some said they specifically were reaching out to disenfranchised communities, blah, 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 blah. But the numbers don't bear out that they're training African-American women, I'll just say disenfranchised groups. And so again, you know, this is the USDA saying, we're making it right. We're putting the money out there. We're making it right. This is how we're, you know, settling our debt to the black farmers, yet those that got the money. So I just, you know, wanted to make people aware of kind of the climate beyond just Baltimore, so. Thank you. And I think there's no reason why in Baltimore there couldn't be a group of people to apply for those grants to make that happen right here. I mean, those things can exist. So go ahead. So then I'm going to come back to the panel. I want you all to jump right in. Hi, my name is Alvin Gordon. I just wanted to say, um, I heard a lot of stuff about, you know, farming and so, but one thing that people forget is the generation gap. Um, the generation gap between the youth today and the, and the generation before is not there. Um, I grew up on a farm. I grew up in the Caribbean, I grew up on a farm. And, um, and even the prime minister of my country, I grew up in Grenada for, you know, nobody knows. Um, even the prime minister says himself, um, he's watched his father um, work on the farm and he's not gonna do it because the farm has no value. Um, and for me who grew up on a farm, that's hurtful um, because the value of the land itself that is lost and it's not passed down to the next generation, today all what we get as a, I'm a young guy, all what we get is technology and technology and technology and technology, but we don't get the farming and what, we don't, we don't use that technology to put back into the farm. So there is a generation gap as for those people or the elder people who, who worked on the farm could now pass that on to us and we can use our technology to better, to, and apply it to the farm, but we don't get that, there's a disconnect between there, so we don't know how to apply our, our generation technology to the farm and, and have, make use of the land. We don't have that. So therefore, the land is, go, is not put to use. And that's, there's a, and that's where the disconnect is. And that's why you don't see as much of that land is being to use and a lot of it's going to waste because of that disconnect, because of the elderly people is not passing back that back down to our generation. So therefore, everything goes to waste. Sasha, you had a comment. Uh, yeah, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Sasha. And I just wanted to speak to a few different points, and I'll be super brief. But the film in general was very touching for me. I was sitting here the entire time fighting back tears because it was my story also. And, um, you know, I am the filmmaker, so my family grew up in the South. And I didn't, I didn't look it up because I couldn't find my phone, but my family is from Fitzgerald, Georgia, which I assume is not that far from Macon County where Montezuma is. Um, and so 
the biggest thing that the film made me want to do as an urban grower is go back home to Fitzgerald because I've never had a desire to do that. And I think to your point, Mark, about the pain and trauma associated with our family lands and with our family farms and our family um, livelihood of farming, you know, I didn't realize how much of it I was still carrying in the sense that I never had a desire to go to where my, you know, my family was birthed. My mother's uh, mother is from Lynchburg, South Carolina, right outside of Florence, and my mother's father is from Fitzgerald. And so my, my grandparents grew up as migrant workers in the South. They picked cotton, they picked oranges, they picked all these things, and then they transplanted to the North. Um, and I saw that, that line, Aaliyah, about, you know, us being a transplant that didn't take that's my family history, you know. As soon as we got here, we fell apart. Um, and so I have a family trauma of not feeling like my family is together. Like, I've never been to a family reunion. I've never been to the farm, you know, and just ran around, even though my older cousins and my mother did. And so in talking about how do we change the system that we have now and how do we use the system that we already have that we're building, the fragmented system, I think it's multifold. So Heber, to your point, yes, the churches, please finance us because the USDA does not currently have any urban um, loans or grants on the books. They have some SARE grants that you can use for research, but you have to be really innovative to get that, <laughs> you know, and, and there are all types of, you know, crowdsourced funding that we can do, but you have to be really innovative and not farm while you're doing it to do that, you know, so, it, so where, where do we start? You just, you start, you know, you already know at least five farmers, so take up a collection. We will take the money and we will use it. I'm from that area in Georgia myself, and I have a lot of memories that are incomplete. And this homecoming film is so important for all of us, especially African Americans, because we rely on the land to survive for so long, and we have forgotten our roots. And it's so important for us to remember where we came from and deal with the pain of our history. Because we're, we have to be a part of the hope for our future. And I want to let Pastor Brown know this, that in my church, one of the old women told me why they start homecoming celebration in our church. And it was to support the homes in the South. But, you know, I didn't get a little deeper into the history of homecoming, but homecoming has a history for African Americans. We need to look at that history. And that's where it's all about. It all started in the South. I'm going to think these two comments here, they were very powerful and moving. And, and, and we do have to begin to wrap this up a little bit. I, I want to, I know you have something to say here. You're about to, you have that mic in your hand, so please. Oh, uh, well, just to close out on my part, it's just land is freedom, and I feel like everyone in this room, by the raise of hands of people who have gardens, already understand that. But, um, yeah, and, th and this history, this, the stories that we have to tell are so important. So I, I ask, or I would say everyone just needs to go out and talk to their grandmother, talk to their great uncle, talk to their great aunts. It wasn't until I started farming that my grandmother from Trinidad started telling me the history of our land in Trinidad, of our family, of like the farmers there. And then I get a lot of growing tips from her. You know, we just have to have these conversations and heal this generational gap in our relationship with the land. How you doing? My name is Asar, and I'm um, a farm educator at the Fannie Lou Hamer Sundiata Coley Farm. And we're in West Baltimore at a school called Connections. 
and this is our first season. And one thing that I've learned is that the children are the solution, and it's something that's been echoed throughout the crowd. And, um, you know, we have to reclaim our culture, and we have to redefine success for youth. It's okay to play football and play basketball, but we need people to go into agriculture and not just be farmers, but also the ones that market, the ones that do the artwork, the ones that do the, the media. We need the mechanics. We need the droughts. We need the infrastructure. So when, we, when I talk to a child and they say, I don't want to put my hands in the dirt, I say, that's fine. What do you want to do? And if you're doing that, then we need to add to that so that we can really build this infrastructure institution that we need to build. And uh, that generation gap is closing because all the ones that I know in this room, they are educators of youth. And I've learned a lot from this mama and I apply it to the youth. So things are changing. Thank you. That's a good program you have. It's a great program you have. Ma'am. Oh, great. I'm Cassandra Jones-Havard. I teach at the University of Baltimore School of Law. And over 15 years ago, I wrote an article about the USDA and the plight of black farmers. And of course, the sad thing is that a lot of people didn't get paid uh, and still, you know, the policies haven't changed. So I really want to talk about advocacy and lobbying uh, because it's urban farming. We need to do farming on many different levels, but to go for the USDA money, we've got to talk about how USDA has to change. Um, but also for kids, it would be great to have camps, um, you know, or summer camps uh, on farms because Children do learn so much by connecting with the land. Um, so I just see so many, you know, ways to do this, and so many, the cooperative is the thing to get started, so it'd be great. We can talk about that. But we are about out of time. Am I right about that? Since we're in your church, <laughs> and I asked you the question first about where we can go and where this might take us, I wish you would kind of wrap up for us this evening Reverend Brown, what you've heard and how that fits in to this vision and, that you were talking about in the very beginning. Yeah. Um, okay, so thank you. I've learned so much from each of you and your ideas and your energy and passion and zeal has been encouraging, helping to intensify the fire and passion I had. Um, one of my professors, Dr. Jerome Ross uh, at Virginia Union University in Richmond, he would say, I'm a believer and a realist. The two are not the same. And so I started by talking about what I believe in terms of a dream. You've helped to inform the realist side of this, the other aspects to consider as you're organizing, whether it be this database or centralized location, whether it be teaching the children in schools, what have you. Um, I'm clear that there are many different ways to gather, organize, and mobilize. I'm also clear that each of us is planted in a particular place and we have opportunity to bloom where you are planted, right? So I'm planted in this church as a third-generation Baptist preacher, seven years of pastoring in this wonderful church that I want to correct you, Mark, it's not mine, but it's ours. It's our community. Um, and from where I sit, I still, whether it's the, I, I understand the USDA's opportunities, and you said 18 million, that's a whole lot of zeros, and the grants that are out there and the like, and for those who have that particular um, skill sets to go after that 18 million, praise the Lord, go get it. Uh, and any support that we can give to that. Another way in addition to that, not instead of, in addition, is, is, is I'm, I'm just embracing a do-for-self do mentality with this. And when we do for self, I don't have to wait 
for the USDA to give me approval on some application, whatever. So with collectives and cooperatives and the like, there's a long tradition of black and brown and poor folk doing for self, getting fed up enough to say, you know what, I'm not waiting for y'all no more. We'll figure it out ourselves. As somebody said, every week, this is a gathering place. Some people say, you know, they come in here and they say, you know, I'm not, I don't get down with Jesus or the Bible. I say, okay, fine. Listen, take all that away. Listen, just understand something for a minute. People come here together every single week and open their wallets every single week. Old and young gather here together every single week. This is one of the last places where intergenerational uh, fellowships happen, one of the last places. It happens every single week. Homecoming happens every single year. Thank you so much. You're so right. That video pulled it out. We have homecoming every year. Uh, my grandparents still go down south for homecoming. All of that still, the pieces are there. And I just feel like a little boy on a train track just trying to connect the pieces. And the church is one of those places, I believe, where the resources can come together. We can open up for people to come together. And not to say the church is the answer of itself, because there's many other ways to do it. But we could get a good running start right up in here. And other places like this uh, to gather and bring people together. So I thank you for that one. Let me just say, as we conclude here, um, that I want to thank all of our panelists. Just heard the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, Alea Frazier from the Black Dirt Farm, and Duane Kozer from Brooklyn uh, Greenhouse Community, and Lavette Blue from Greener Gardens for being on this panel here today uh, for us. And, um, and this room, to me, I'll close with this, is black and Latino and Asian and white in this church, all of whom want to build a different world here in Baltimore and a different world for to feed people and make this a healthy living place. So this is a place to begin. I think we're beginning here. So this has been a very important night, I think. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Public Radio Delmarva is Christopher Rank. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcasts on iTunes. And for Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and for WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.